Hi there, my name is Michael Harris. I'm host of Falling Up Radio. I'm really excited you're here today. We're gonna to have a really frank, raw, and edgy conversation today with our guests, and I'm really looking forward to that. But if that's something that's interests you and you're looking to maybe be good in your life, this is a show that, that you don't want to miss. First of all, I, I wanna mention, depending upon where you're listening, you may be listening online, or you may be listening on Stitcher or iTunes or Blog Talk or one of the other platforms. If you're listening on uh, audio, go to the website fallingupradio.com. And on the website, you can get a copy, a free copy of my book, Falling Down, Getting Up. It's literally an absolute free copy. You just uh, subscribe to Falling Up Radio and you download the book and you have it. And if you still want to get a, a printed copy as well, you can do that too. Um, so enough said about that. I want to get right to our, our guest today. I met our guest recently um, here locally. We, we both live in Bend, Oregon, and we were asked to be on stage with the legendary Les Brown. It's actually coming up this Monday. Depending upon when you listen to this, you can still get a ticket and get here in time. But if it's later on, the legendary Les Brown, and I kind of look at Les as kind of one of the godfathers of motivation. And I jokingly say that when Tony Robbins gets depressed and bombed out, he probably calls Les for some motivation. Um, but Ken and I met, and we had a cup of coffee recently, and I was really amazed at what this man has accomplished. Ken Streeter, and I'm just reading off of my paper here. I, I, I like to make notes of, of um, our guests, but Ken is really a person that does good in the world. He's a social good entrepreneur, as he calls himself, philosopher. He's written a couple of books. Another one's coming out pretty soon. Um, he's a contributing editor to what's called Motivation.com. He's consulted with Fortune 500 clients. One of the intriguing things, he's also an international river guide. Maybe he'll tell us a little bit, bit about that. He's traveled in over 50 countries, sometimes adventure, sometimes um, more professional. Um, he's been floating on Siberian rivers. Uh, it goes on and on and on. So let's get Ken on right away. I don't want to take too much time. So let's jump right in and talk to Ken. So Ken Streeter, welcome to our show today. Hi, Michael. It's great to be here. I'm honored to be on your show and excited to talk about whatever comes up. Well, yeah, thank you. And thank you for being here. You know, one of the things that, that I wrote down here was choosing trust over fear. And it was the name of a talk that you did, a TED talk that you did. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so um, every day we're bombarded with the economics of fear whether it's media or insurance or pharmaceuticals, there are uh, entities, major corporations and otherwise, that are uh, wanting us to live more fearful lives. And there's a simple reason for that, and that is profitability. If they're, buying, if they're selling more pharmaceuticals or insurance, uh, if the government is wanting to uh, enforce certain legislation, uh, if the media wants to sell commercials, um, we are bombarded with fear-based information 
that gets in the way of us being innately trusting. We're, we're born to trust and we're taught to fear. And um, what I've noticed is that communities that are founded in fear tend to decay. Uh, they certainly don't hum right along. And communities that uh, embrace trust flourish. And I've noticed that in places as far away as Siberia uh, and Alaska and uh, Zimbabwe and Bolivia. I've, I've had the good fortune of, of being in communities that you could, you could tell the trust was explicit and ran through their veins. And then I've had the, the disfortune or the learning opportunities to be in communities that are, are more founded in fear and that have bought into this economics of fear as opposed to uh, the innate ability to trust. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've heard it described, too, is that there's money in misery. Yeah, well, and, and boy, we're, we're living proof of that day after day. Yeah. So when, when, when you travel and you go into these communities and you really find these communities of trust, that's really much more than on the individual level. That's on the community level. How does the community learn to develop this trust within their community? <laughs> well, um, there's, a, there's a couple of different ways that they do that. And my apologies for the background noise. That's a no worries. fax coming in. The, um, the, uh, and, it, and the fax never rings, which is odd to me. But um, people develop trust by in a number of different ways. One is forgiveness. I mean, if, if somebody in your community wrongs the community and they, they cop to that, then the members of the community actually embrace that person and, and come to, to trust that person again. Uh, another is by having a, a phenomenal network of organizations that prop up those in the community that are less fortunate, nonprofit, church-based, philanthropic organizations. And so if, if you go into a community that in its fabric has a, an organizational or a foundational um, underpinning of the awareness of the, the, the members that struggle the most being integral to the community and uh, uh, vital to have them lifted up as part of the fabric of the community, then trust abounds. It's, it's when the hierarchy, the economic hierarchy kicks in and, and people are, are um, become far more territorial than we need to be that the lack of trust pervades. And, and it's fascinating, you know, obviously genetically we were, we were uh, originally in, in, a, in societies just with absolutely enough sustenance and then at some point we became uh, uh, far more industrial and territorial and it became a mode of the day to control people through fear tactics. And, and now that we live, most of us live in these societies with absolute abundance where we have clearly more than we could possibly need, that we have more time for consciousness and in that consciousness comes an awareness for our ability to trust and to kind of discount maybe even discard the last 150 years of the industrial movement that really capitalized on our fear. Yeah. And did you find that that's more true in, <clears throat> excuse me, in what, what in Western cultures versus maybe Africa or some of the other places that you've traveled? I mean, how does that evolve from yeah, Different cultures. That's a great question. I can remember walking uh, mm. in a, a dirt road in Livingston, Zambia, and uh, 
um, watching men walk down the street holding hands and clearly having this uh, this connection that they didn't hesitate to exhibit. I was stuck in an airport in Zimbabwe, a Bush airport in Zimbabwe, trying to get out. Uh, this is 30 years ago when I found out that my dad had died back in the States. And Sidney Mapufu, this young uh, native uh, with basically nothing else to do on a Sunday, came into the airport and started talking to me. I told him while I was there. And he spent the entire day with me hanging out as I kept trying to get on one flight after another that was full. He never left my side. And, and it, that to me is an indication of if you're able to trust in the poorest of communities, if you're not forced to be territorial in the poorest of communities like this place was, then surely you should be able to trust in communities that have more uh, material goods and wealth than you could possibly imagine. Interestingly, Bend, Oregon is as first world as it gets, and it is one of the most collaborative and trusting communities on earth. And the reason simply is, and this goes to how you build trust in other communities if it's not quite as high as you'd like it, is you find common ground and you find common interests. And even with differences, as long as you maintain the awareness of this common ground and these common interests, you're able to build a flourishing, trusting community, even if differences exist, whether they're philosophical or political or economic. And what we have in Central Oregon is simply a love for the outdoors and people that love people who love the outdoors. And so this common thread allows us to be one of the most collaborative communities on earth. Sure. Now, did, did you grow up here in this area or where did you grow up or where did you find your love for the outdoors? I grew up in San Bernardino, California, which back then was a, uh, a more rural place than it is today. I lived on a dead end street and, and we were surrounded by orange groves on three sides. And I just loved hiking out, walking out into the orange groves and that's not true wilderness. Um, but I, I'm, I'm really not 100% sure where my love for the wilderness and love for adventure came from. I remember my very first backpacking trip, my three friends and my brother and I, we couldn't find the trailhead. It was in uh, the San Bernardino National Forest, and we couldn't find the trailhead. So we actually walked up the dirt road to this campground, this car access campground, and every five minutes we'd get dusted out by cars. <laughs> and then once we got to the campground, we found the trail back to where we had started from. So we spent the night just outside of that campground. But even with that mishap, I've always had this affinity for the outdoors. Maybe it came from when my dad uh, uh, took us water skiing when we were younger. And even though that's not a truly natural setting, it was a man-made lake. We were outdoors and we were experiencing the adrenaline of adventure. Sure, sure. Now, do, do you remember, because you, you are really an international rafting guy and spent a lot of time doing that. Do you remember your first rafting trip? Oh, very clearly. And that was also due to my dad. I was managing a sporting goods store at the time in uh, San Bernardino or no, San Diego. And uh, my dad said that he wanted to take uh, his three kids, my sister, and my brother and I rafting. And it was on the lower Kern River uh, in the Southern Sierra in California. And uh, I was hooked and I was hooked by so many things, obviously the wilderness and the whitewater. But what really struck me was the camaraderie among the guides and this, this um, team approach to making sure that everybody was safe and comfortable. And I, I'd, you know, backpacked and I'd rock climbed at that point, but I'd never experienced the combination of teamwork 
either in your raft or as part of a flotilla in an outdoor adventure setting. And it just completely appealed to me. Uh, I actually went rafting one more time that summer, uh, knew I knew it was for me uh, and signed up for a river guide school. This was in 1983 and uh, became a river guide. Wow. So we, we, I, we were talking about this before about the idea of the goodness and the goodness project and all that and where that idea came from. I'm picking up a little bit. It may have come from that first rafting trip. You're right. It absolutely did. We had on that trip, we had four or five different guides and I, I had no, I, no idea what the guide life was, but there was a first year guide. I think she was 16 years old, Dory. And then there was a couple of 20 somethings and then there was a 40 something. And then the guests ranged in age from probably 13 or 14 on up to 60 or 70. And, and the vibe on that trip was just have fun and, and be good. And I don't say that in a trite way. It's just be good, be your best self because you're out here in the middle of nowhere and you're, you're experiencing this amazing adventure together. So let's be good together. And the guides embodied that on that very first trip. It was all about just making sure that people were taken care of and that life was good. Yeah. So when, when, when you went through the, the rafting school, was it your intention right then to be a, a guide? Yeah, I kind of knew from that very first rafting trip and then the affirmation, the second trip, that uh, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to be a river guide. And so I took a seven-day course uh, in California, and uh, the rest is history. I was a guide for a number of years, and then I started managing that same company that uh, I took the, the Whitewater School with. And it was a big company, 28 different rivers and 200 river guides and 20-some vehicles all up and down the West Coast. Wow. And so I managed that for a couple of years and then had the opportunity to go manage a rafting company in Norway. So I took that uh, opportunity and spent a couple of years, hurt my back while I was in Norway. So I spent a couple of years at first doing that, came home after my back got hurt and uh, then went back at it. Uh, ultimately landed in Alaska with my then girlfriend today, wife, and uh, completely healed my back. And that's when I decided I wanted to run my own company and uh, I did that for about 15 years. So, so you ran your own company and was it focused on just rafting or was there some do good attached to that? So, so rafting inherently and a rafting company inherently has a do good underpinning because people are coming to you to feel good. And so you want to accentuate that and provide so many different ways for them to feel good. And in doing that, we're doing good, whether that's preparing amazingly healthy uh, meals, whether that, believe it or not, is if a family comes to you, you have the opportunity to take care of all of their needs. Uh, mm -hmm. So they have infinite opportunities on rafting trips to just be a family without having to worry about any responsibilities, food, shelter, uh, safety, it's all under the guide's umbrella. And so families can just reconnect because there's no outside distractions and there's no sense of anybody really in the family feeling like they need to be responsible for one another beyond obviously the normal parent-child deal. So we provided we did good in those settings just because of the innate nature of rafting. And we took it to a couple of other levels uh, by offering really, really top shelf services 
um, that some of the other companies weren't doing. And the feedback we got was that uh, their lives were changed. Our clients' lives were changed and they felt, literally felt the goodness in the world. And then they could take that back uh, into their own normal everyday lives. Yeah. So, so when, when you went to international locations, because you've been to a lot of international locations, and I want to talk to you about a couple of those. Um, were, were you conscious about working closely with local communities where, where they existed and, and working with, with some of the, the local people to create that connection? Yeah, not only to connect, to create that connection and have, have now goodness be more global, um, but also to make sure that they were well tended to economically. This is an opportunity. It's, it's a rare opportunity. It's a rare industry to be able to bring people into a, a native environment outside of your country and infuse that, that culture with um, brotherhood and sisterhood and money and to do it in a way that doesn't do any harm to the environment. And so it's a rare industry when you can add all of those variables together and bring goodness into another country. And then of course, the things that we learned from those interactions that made, made me who I am today. Yeah, yeah. So how many continents have you rafted on? All uh, of them? I've never, I've never rafted uh, in, and I don't even know if you can, I don't, I've never rafted in Antarctica. I don't think you can. Uh, and then I've never been to Australia or New Zealand, so I've never done anything in Oceania. But Asia, Europe, North America, South America, Africa. Yeah. Uh, my doorbell just rang. I think that's a UPS delivery, but I'm not going to go get it right now. Um, so what do you think? I, I know you've rafted in, like, Russia and Africa and some, some different places. What is like a really memorable story that you have about one of those trips? Uh, I, I, would, I would probably go to uh, one of the trips in Siberia. And it was partly what happened there, but it was also partly what happened from that. Um, the, we were on the first ever trip that we know of where Westerners were able to access a portion of Siberia. It was wow. on the Katoon River in South Central Siberia. And we um, floated in, well, we helicoptered, that was a big part of the adventure, was helicoptering over these 14,000 foot mountains in a rainstorm in a rust bucket helicopter that uh, rattled as hard as anything imaginable. It was like we were inside of a coffee can and somebody was just shaking the marbles around in the coffee can. That's the sound that we experienced. But I remember looking at the pilots up in the cockpit and these guys were just steely eyed dudes that were going to get to where they were going no matter what. And no matter what they were flying in, that was kind of how, how perilous it felt. So it was but, probably normal to them. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was that they they didn't have state of the art equipment in Siberia. They had what they had, and they kept it flying. But yeah. after after getting to the launch point by helicopter, a couple of days after launching, we pulled up into this town that that kind of looked like um, the 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 dust storm town in the Wizard of Oz with, uh, during the black and white portions of that film. It was just <laughs> really hard scrabble, old uh, cabins and buildings, and as we walked into this town that was a population of maybe a couple 300 the locals literally ran and hid behind their uh, slam doors and curtains afraid that we were being invaded 
uh, you know, we had bright yellow river wear on. We had video cameras that might have looked like automatic weapons. We clearly weren't from there or of that ilk, and they disappeared into their buildings. And after a few minutes, one of the elders came out, and he started talking to us through an interpreter and uh, came to realize that we weren't there to invade them or hurt them. And, and one of the things that he said, now we're literally thousands of miles from Moscow in the middle of nowhere. The name of this town is actually translated to Reindeer Hunting Village. It's, wow. it's a small place in the middle of nowhere. And he said something that struck, struck me then and sticks with me to this day. He said, you, you people aren't the barbarians our government told us you were. Mm. And if ever there was an illustration of the power, getting back to what we talked about initially, of the economics of fear, this was it. Yeah. And we developed friendships with these people. They gave us parting gifts, which was this curdled milk stuff, which was probably the sourest drink on earth, but we still took it and drank it. Uh, and, and the essence of that exchange manifest into a much bigger um, a project. We were there to explore rivers for the first ever Soviet and American youth rafting team building trip, the acronym Project Raft, Russians and Americans for Teamwork, um, described what we were trying to do. And we came back the next year with 10 American high school and college kids and rafted with 10 Soviet uh, high school and college kids and, and created a, uh, an organization that uh, to this day is still at least to some degree responsible for cultural exchange trips and world championships. Wow. Just be between Russia and America or between um, other countries as well? It, it eventually became global that where we would hold uh, rallies and people from all different countries, river rafters from all different countries would come together and spend a week or so together competing, but competing in the name of brotherhood and sisterhood. Well, I like it. So I also, in my notes, I have somebody, a story about Igor. Yeah. Was that part of that same trip or? So Igor was the interpreter on that first trip that the Russians provided him. And, and we think the Russians might've provided interpreters for more than just interpreting. We, we are of the opinion that they were kind of keeping their eye on us to make sure we weren't doing something super espionage. Which sure. Was, but um, Igor was a young uh, interpreter. At that time, I think he was probably 20 years old. Uh, and he learned to speak English by playing John Denver songs on his guitar. And so wow. he would regale us every night with John Denver songs and other James Taylor and different entertainers. Uh, and he spoke really good English. And as part of the youth exchange program, after the group rafted the river in Siberia, the students, we brought everybody over to uh, the States and the same group of students rafted on the Grand Canyon. And part of that, uh, part of that event was being invited to what was then called the Windstar Symposium, which John Denver put on at Aspen, where he invited uh, meaningful nonprofits to come to his symposium to learn about each other and to kind of grow that, that force. Uh, and one of the most touching memories of my life was I asked John Denver uh, towards the end of the show if he could uh, spend a little bit of time with Igor because Igor clearly was a huge fan of John Denver's. And um, Igor had come over with a group from Russia and John Denver and Igor and a couple of friends of mine had the opportunity to go into a back room at the end of this entire symposium. And Igor got to play John Denver songs for John Denver. 
Which, wow. Here's a kid from Siberia that would never in his wildest dreams have imagined to have that kind of opportunity. And it, 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 it came true. Wow. It's hard. It's hard for me as, as a kid from Oregon to imagine that that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's, he was touched by that. And he, Igor went on to play music the rest of his life. And, um, yeah. and, and these kids, I'm still in contact with some of these kids. And, and I don't know if I can say this in its entirety for every single one of them, but so many of those kids, now they're obviously grown adults, have taken on some charge, some purpose that's much bigger than themselves. And that includes everything from environmental causes to world peace. Yeah. So the, the do good trip that, that you did, did good and those people are still doing good. Yeah, it's a, it's a pebble in a pond. It just keeps rippling yeah. out. Yeah. So how, how does that influence you today? I know that you wrote a couple of books. Mm -hmm. One is already out and you've got the other one coming out pretty soon. What, what is that first book about? So that book is The Gift of Courage, and it's about eight everyday community leaders who in one form or another faced their fear, embraced their fear, actually, and in doing so became a critical everyday hero to their respective communities. One of the chapters is about a guy named Josh Kern, who is a, uh, formed a charter school in Ward 8 in Washington, D.C., which is the most violent, on some accounts, the most violent neighborhood in America. Mm -hmm. 3,000, when I wrote the book, there were 3,000 violent crimes a year that happened wow. in, this, in this community that was a mile by two miles wide, more or less. Eight and, a day or something. What's that? That's like eight a day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Eight violent crimes a day in, an, in an, essentially a suburb, a small suburb, a neighborhood. Yeah. And, and Josh saw an opportunity to help kids that wanted to help themselves in that neighborhood. And he opened up a charter school on, on a corner that was once marked by murder and mayhem. And it was a public charter school and kids were allowed to come there. Now this is a white Jewish guy from upper class America who was a lawyer in DC and said, I can do more with my life than what I'm doing. And he opened this charter school and he encouraged the, the locals to bring their students, the parents to bring their students, and they did. It grew over time. And ever since that school opened, every single senior that has graduated from that school has gone on to college. And many of them have come back to, their, to that community, to Ward 8, and are making a difference in their neighborhood right now. And so no, you said every single kid graduated. That's phenomenal. Every single senior, every single graduate. Okay has gone on to college. Wow. And their graduation rate, so the, 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 the neighboring public school has a 40% dropout rate. And these guys at Thurgood Marshall Academy, I think it's something like 97% graduation rate. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's amazing for any school. Yeah, for any school. So I, I don't know if any, any school could beat that. I, I'd be hard pressed to find one, especially a public charter school. Now, what's yeah. interesting about it is because it's, it's, a, it's clearly a successful school with an amazing uh, teaching philosophy. But from what I understand, not one kid from outside of Ward 8 has ever opted to come to school there. I had taxi drivers that were afraid to take me across D.C. to the school to meet the students and to meet Josh. That's how violent it was. Wow. And all of these kids now, homegrown kids, are making a difference back home in, in Ward 8. So the wow. book's about people like that. Yeah. So, so there's other good stories in there too, like that. Yeah. There's a story about Kelly Califatich, who's a river guide friend of mine who helped create micro economies on the, 
uh, uh, Zambezi River where locals could become river guides and support their families. Um, there's a story about Martha Ryan who started the homeless prenatal program in San Francisco and has literally helped thousands of family members off the streets of San Francisco and done it at about one-tenth of the cost of government programs. Wow. Lots of, lots of amazing community leaders out there, and I had the good fortune to spend time with all of them and, and be able to write this book. Yeah. So what, what's the next book? Is it a continuation of that, or is, there, is it a slightly different? The next book, and it's due out hopefully at the end of this month or early March, is called Be the Good. And the subtitle is Becoming a Force for a Better World, and it's different than this book. Uh, it draws on examples of, of some people like the ones that are in The Gift of Courage, but this book is more of a how-to guide to become a force for good in your community. And there are 20 simple action steps that you can institute in your life one at a time and, and change how you are so you can help change how your community is, one degree, two degrees, three degrees, whatever. And, and the idea simply is that all of us, each of us have this capacity. And if if we're feeling like it's too much to tackle, to do this, to make the world a better place, which that's a big part of the problem is everybody feels overwhelmed. I want to do something, but I don't know how to do it. Well, I've broken it down. Here's 20 chapters. Each chapter has a story and each chapter has an action item or an idea that uh, individuals can put into place that will make a big difference in their life and their community's life. So how much of it is focused on like the individual making a change versus, or I don't know if versus is the right way, in conjunction with taking steps and helping other people at the same time. So every single step has to involve the individual doing something differently, but I would say about 30% of them are focused more on true internal personal development and mm -hmm. making changes internally in order to make changes externally. And I just had this explained to me the other day. It was uh, just a, like a light bulb moment for me. This the, a gentleman that I was at a meeting with said, uh, think of yourself as kind of like a wood burning stove. Uh, uh, and so if you have a really good, strong fire burning inside, then you can, you can just kind of not always have to tend to that. But mm -hmm. even as you, get that fire going and burning inside and you no longer have to tend to it for a long time, the heat still radiates out and you're providing this beautiful passive energy. That's, that's what a wood burning stove does. And so if you improve yourself on a personal development front, you're stoking your own internal fire and the benefits radiate out in, in ways that we may never even completely realize. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, this may be a, a bit of a rabbit hole to, to go down, what I'm, I'm going to throw out here. I've, lately, I've, I've thought a lot about the difference between, you know, like taking small steps, doing one step at a time kind of thing. And, and oftentimes, you know, I look at nature a lot for reflection. I look at, you know, like a tree takes a long time to grow, or most trees do. Some bamboo grows really fast. But, you know, like the Chinese bamboo sits in the ground, the seed for seven years, breaks ground, and then it grows like a foot a day. So, I mean, you, you could say that that was like nurturing in the dark for a while, and then all of a sudden taking a quantum leap and, and growing. And then, you know, I, I was up uh, locally here in the Cascades in October, 
before the highway was closed up there out in the middle of Sparks Lake. You know, you can walk out there because there's very little water out there. So I walked out there and my thought was, okay, any moment there's going to be a giant snowstorm coming in and it's going to like change everything instantly. So it's like a nature and the weather in nature is like taking a quantum leap, a shape shifting, just like that. So there's like this place for like these small steps, but yet at some point a decision is made as well, and you can take a quantum leap. Does, does that make sense? Oh, it makes great sense, and those are great analogies. And, you know, one of the people that uh, I'm sharing the stage with on uh, the 25th with Les Brown is, uh, there's two of them actually, but I'll just draw attention to one is Michelle Mitchell, who is the co-founder of Hum Kombucha. And she took very, very little steps for the, the, the vast majority of the evolution of her company and provided kombucha for locals. And it started with her basically driving it in bottles to locals. And then she recognized the value of a healthy drink in everybody's hands and the change from her company being a relatively small, uh, successful and meaningful local company to a uh, national and, and now even beginning to be an international success was exactly that big step that you described. They started small, they built their business, Jamie and Michelle, and then literally three years ago, I want to say, it, mm -hmm. it, they said, we can take this to a much bigger level, and we should because of the good that it's going to provide, and it's, it's blown up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're definitely a great example. And um, another brief example is I noticed, you know, I've owned a couple of yoga studios. My first yoga studio that I owned, I opened in 99 and I was kind of struggling financially with it for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, one of the things I recognized was that within like a yoga system and to be able to do asana and to be able to do a sequence, you need to be able to breathe, breathe in and breathe out, you know, that prana, that energy. And so I took that idea and applied it to my business and the idea that the, the money and the revenue coming in and out was that breath. Wow. And as soon as I, you know, recognize that correlation, at least for, for me in that situation, literally overnight, I noticed a change in my business. Wow, that's great. And, and I, I think nature gives us these examples in so many different ways that if we live in tune with that, things can happen really fast because it's nature. Yeah. And that's a perfect example of, of mindfulness or personal development, of paying attention, of awareness being a catalyst to change. Yeah. And that's, that's really kind of what the wood-burning stove model is all about, is being aware of what you can do internally, and in that case, using the breathing metaphor, and having that become a, a, a reality, having that manifest into either personal community business, whatever, different types of affairs. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to I jump into something. This may not be a very good segue at, at all, but um, I know that you were in Hawaii um, during the, the time where, where there was a lot of concern and I think there was actual air raids and concern about a possible uh, nuclear attack um, that must have been pretty frightening. Yeah, uh, 
that's actually a chapter in Be the Good is that, oh. that story. Uh, mm -hmm. So we were there. My one of my I have three kids. I have a, a 15 year old boy and twin 12 year old girls. And, uh, we were there uh, uh, two Januarys ago, not this last January, but the January before, at a, a gymnastics meet. We'd flown over from Central Oregon with her gymnastics club members and run a gymnastics meet. And my um, my wife and Delaney, the gymnast, we dropped them off at the meet. Uh, my son, another daughter, Dawson and Dari, and I went to the grocery store. We're going to the grocery store, and uh, a minute after we dropped them off at the meet, we're 10 miles as the crow flies from Pearl Harbor in Honolulu. Um, my son says, Dad, did you see the alert? Did you see the alert? And up on our phones, his phone had popped, this is not a drill, inbound nuclear missile, mm. uh, seek shelter or something to that effect. And uh, so we whipped the car back around, went back to the gym, and uh, ran towards the gym entrance and there were people that were just stunned around the entrance. And the reason they were stunned was because Hawaii for the previous few months had been practicing nuclear attack drills because of the friction with North Korea. So they knew that it was possible. They had been trained over the previous three months that a nuclear attack was very possible, if not imminent. That's kind of how they were feeling at that point. So at the entrance, people were milling around silent on their phones, shocked parents, you know, if, if, if you're in an earthquake as a parent, you kind of know what to do. If you're, if there's a tornado coming, you kind of know what to do. Uh, if there's a nuclear bomb headed your way, you kind of don't know what to do. Yeah. So um, I grabbed Ari and Dawson. We ran inside and we couldn't find my wife, Danielle and Delaney. Mm -hmm. uh, I called them. They said they were back in the very back corner in a small locker room because that's what they had been instructed to do, to go as deeply as you could into the building. As we're walking back to that locker room, the, the facilities, the, the meet organizer gets on the microphone and he says, these are his exact words. Folks, we have 15 minutes to impact. We should pray. Mm. And with that, we went into the locker room and we were surrounded by probably 50 other people, families with little girl gymnasts and brothers and sisters and grandparents. And the whole place was uh, an emotional disaster it was an emotional seller it was people were crying and hugging their kids my daughter Dari said am I gonna die I said we're all together it's okay um, I gave her a hug my son leaned against the wall and pulled out his phone and was texting people I didn't know what he was doing at that time but I could tell he was texting and I'm looking at other fathers and other parents eyes mother's eyes and just literally all of us wondering silently what the hell we're supposed to do in this situation and um, we lived like that for about five minutes, just uh, completely convinced that the bomb was coming our way and that uh, we were either going to be killed by the fallout or killed by the impact. And um, about seven minutes in, uh, somebody got a, a, a tweet or something from a state senator that said that the alarm was a false alarm. And uh, more and more of those things began popping up on people's phones. And we realized that unofficially that it wasn't an attack. And, and finally, when enough of us felt that way, you know, when, when emotions are at their peak, there's a lid that can be placed on them just because you're trying, as a parent, you're trying to figure out what to do. You know, you, you try to keep under control. But when everybody realized that it was a false alarm, the lid got blown off of that emotional pot and people literally, myself too, 
just started crying our eyes out and fell to the ground and hugged people. And, um, so we walked out of the gym room. It became an official announcement. And I asked my son what he was tweeting people or who he was tweeting and uh, what he was saying. And he said, uh, I was telling people that I was sorry if I ever hurt their feelings and goodbye. And uh, the, the, the message of that, this chapter in the book that I've written is be less certain. Um, and all that, all that really matters is this, that uh, time is precious and love is everything. And we're so infrequently reminded of that, that I wanted to memorialize that event and hopefully have people be able to have that become a part of their DNA as a result of reading this chapter. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah, it was tough. And uh, to this day, one of my daughters does not want to go back to Hawaii because of the, the shock from that event. So yeah. all alive and everybody's doing pretty good. Yeah. How do you think that has affected you even more today, perhaps, in the, the do-good aspect of, of what you do and who you are and the people you work with? Um, it, it's definitely, so on one hand, it's, it's amplified the need for me to, to get the book out there and to speak to this idea that um, uh, good, good matters. And if you wanna be the change in the world that you wanna see, then be the good. Uh, you know, take, take steps. Somebody said the other day that, uh, is it better to have your thoughts create the action or the action create the thoughts? And that's kind of a mantra that I'm going to hang on to now with this. And that is, you, you can think about doing more and being better uh, and, and be overwhelmed by that, maybe take some action, or you can just take one step tomorrow, one step tomorrow to make things better for somebody else. Yeah. And then have that newfound practice become part of your consciousness. Yeah. Now that's a really great, you know, it's a thought or the action. And it's like, you know, I look at it also in the sense of mind body and I don't even like that term mind body because it's really no difference. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're really in, in many ways, just one Our mind and our body are just one. In, in many ways, too, even thought and action is one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. It, it's like the, the two things that uh, I've heard that you can completely control and you can't completely control are your thoughts and your breathing. And, yeah. and, and, and when you link those, it's a, I mean, maybe this overstates it, but magic happens. When, when, you, when you link those, magic happens. Yeah, very much so. And um, th th this is fascinating discussion. So tell the listeners what you are doing today. I know you're writing this book. And but what's your main focus today? Are you doing more raft trips? Are you working with uh, communities and their culture of, of doing good? Yeah, I know you have something called Hurrah Cafe. Maybe that's related in there, too. Yeah, so Hooray Cafe is, so I created this platform, this media platform, and in, in, uh, in part to uh, address the cynicism of media and the, and the economics of fear of media. And, and it's a fledgling business, the idea is to, to, to make sure that people have an alternative news source 
and to have ways to just chill out for a little while. And part of the part of the cafe is to have uh, we call them breathers, nature breathers, music breathers, or comedy breathers, where you can just go and click on something, put your feet up, and and say ah for a minute or two by watching this or listening to this this uh, thing on the website. So the Hooray Cafe is designed to help promote and share good news. And I realized when I when I created that that why why not develop a device that can help communities create their own good news. And so we created the Goodness Sake Project, which is a tangent to the Hooray Cafe. And our goal is to have 20 communities by 2020 to em embrace this uh, movement that includes different things like we have magnets that are called You Matter Magnets. And you can they have sayings like, uh, uh, your kindness is a gift to our community. And, and so communities will be able to have this stash of these magnets that you can randomly put on somebody's, anonymously put on somebody's car door or desk to just let them know that you appreciate their gifts to the community. Um, we have uh, these, these boxes with these cards, these do good now cards that people pull a card out of the box again randomly, and then they're inspired to do that thing that day. Um, mm -hmm. We have good fests that are designed to bring people together and celebrate their community and raise funds for nonprofits. So we've got this template, this business idea that uh, our goal again is to have 20 communities in 2020 adopt this platform and make their own good news. Yeah. And have, have you already uh, started to like, sign up or enroll communities? Yeah. Well, so there's a difference between enrolling and, in, and engaging. Okay. And engaged a number of communities, uh, several in Oregon, a couple in Washington, who want to participate. And now we're going to roll this out and have them, you, we have to have a, a community leader that wants to take it on or a community organization that wants to take it on. Um, and that's, that's kind of where we're at now is developing those relationships. Yeah. You know, the other thing, if I could say, I also am a partner in a commercial real estate company, which in some uh, arenas is regarded as one of the most egregiously profit-driven industries on earth, corporate real estate. It's not long been regarded as a philanthropic pursuit. And our company has changed the way that the industry does business by remembering that uh, in any transaction that community comes before commodity, and we, we encourage all of our brokers to make sure that whatever they're pursuing professionally, there is some element of community growth or community concern in the transaction that they're helping facilitate. And I had an opportunity at one point to completely remove myself from that industry. And I said, okay, I can either continue to hate it because it's not driven by nobility, in my opinion, uh, or I could leave it or I could change it. And this was an example of what somebody can do in their own industry is if you don't feel like it's adhering to uh, right principles, then do what you can to change it. Yeah, that's powerful. And I, I like the idea of those do good cards. I've never heard of those. You know, I've heard of like angel cards and, and those type of things. Yeah. So, so like the do good cards, what are some of the do good actions on your cards? Buy, have, when you go to check out at the grocery store, have an inexpensive bouquet of flowers that you're going to buy. Mm. And when you buy them, you turn to the person behind you in line and you give them a flower. 
or you give them the bouquet. Simple as that. Wow. When you make a sandwich in the morning, make two. Give one away. Simple as that. If there's a poem or a song that has been meaningful to you and you feel like somebody in your office or at your school or on your street would benefit from that, then buy them the iTunes song or take them the poem. There's so many little things that cost nothing to a couple of bucks that you can do in order to just make somebody's day. And I guarantee you that if, when you give somebody a bouquet of flowers that's in line behind you at the grocery store, that is going to stick with them as the best thing that maybe happened their whole day. Yeah, no, no doubt. And look, with that type of idea, do you apply that? You, you mentioned your commercial real estate company. Do you apply that there too? Or do you have like a stack of do good cards for your business, so to speak? You know what? We, we haven't done that, but we meet once a week or so. And we, uh, we remind ourselves of the importance of being holistically aligned in an, in a, in a business that doesn't frequently remind itself of that. And we talk about when we, when we do real estate deals, when our brokers do real estate deals, we talk about the benefits that come to community. We had a broker who had a client that wanted to buy an apartment building. And in that apartment building were, uh, there ended up being four seniors who were on fixed income. And the guy wanted to buy this apartment building and kick everybody out, spruce it up, and uh, charge more rent, 25% more rent, which would have meant that those four people wouldn't have been able to afford to live there. And mm -hmm. so the broker came to my partner and I and said, what do I do? This is heartbreaking to me that I'm going to be, have a hand in this disruption in these people's lives of making them not be able to go home at night. And we said, let's run the math. And we ran the math. And if, if he the buyer of this multifamily complex did not raise the rent on those four units. The change in his return was 0.02%. And so Almost we, we brought it up. We just brought it up. You're, this, is it really worth it to have that much change, 0.02% and have it affect these four people? And the answer, of course, was no. Yeah. So, so the buyer was willing to keep those four people there at their current rent and do good. Exactly. Do good. Well said. Perfectly said, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're coming to the end of our time today. I was just look at, looking at my clock up here, coming to the end of our time today. Is there, I mean, we've talked a lot about this do good. I, I love your books. I love the, the, the idea of the do good cards. I love the idea of the cultural exchange and the rafting and all of that. If there's, is there a possibility to maybe break down for the, for the listeners, maybe three ideas that somebody might be able to implement today that might be along the line of do good or be good. It's, it's the first thing. The first thing I think that you have to um, come to know is that, it, it, it doesn't take but 30 seconds or a minute or maybe five minutes of doing something differently in your life to do good. If, if you want to, if you want to um, um, provide somebody who could use a good jacket, a good jacket, and you know, you've got four extras, go to your closet tonight and pull one out of your closet 
and put it in your car. And tomorrow, if you see somebody on the street or, you, or you're driving by a, a Goodwill store or a, a, a school that has a, a mixed variety of, of, of students, just drop the code off. It's that simple. That, that will take you no more than five minutes to do it. So I used to think that true meaning was uh, meaning in your life was this grand elusive pursuit. It had to be something big. But if you take that two minute period and you do that, that night when you put your head on your pillow, you're going to reflect on the fact that you made a positive impact on at least two people, yourself and somebody else. Yeah. The other thing that, and this is a chapter in the book as well, is we have, we have tens of thousands of thoughts a day run through our head. And most of them, for whatever reason, biogenetically are not positive. But when you have a positive thought about somebody and they're in the same room as you, say it. Just mm say it. That person looks really happy today. That person, that person has really worked hard at, at losing weight. That person yesterday made me laugh. And so often when we have those thoughts, we don't vocalize them. So when it runs through your head, say it. It's that simple. And that takes no time at all. So those are a couple of examples of things that people can do now. And, and then lastly, if there's something that you've been putting off a project, an art project, writing a book, um, starting a nonprofit, figure out where you can spend 20 minutes to a half hour in your day doing something differently than what you're doing now. Whether it's washing, watching TV or um, uh, getting up at seven instead of seven or 6.30 and just find those 20 or 30 minutes and take one step, one step towards that goal. And then the day after that, Take that 20 or 30 minutes and take the second step. You can write a book in a year of 20-minute periods. Mm. Yes, you can. So for um, the listeners on the audio, where can they find out more? I do want to tell you, if you're listening to the audio, you can go back to the, the website under Ken's episode. and We will have listed uh, his websites and contact information. But tell, tell the listeners where they can reach you. Uh, my website, kenstreeter.com, K-E-N-S-T-R-E-A-T-E-R.com. And that has uh, a lot of information about the different things we're doing, the, uh, the uh, Goodness Sake Project, my books. Um, you can also email me anytime at kenstreeter at gmail. I welcome emails. I love the idea of collaborating with people. I love the idea of, of helping people if there's something that they want to do and they're not quite sure of how to make it happen. Uh, so those are the two simplest ways. Uh, and uh, happy to hear from anybody. Wow. That, that's generous to be able to just um, open up to, to anybody. So that's a do good, be good kind of thing. Yeah, like you. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I like what you, you said, and I wrote this down And when we were talking about Hawaii, and you said, time is precious, love is everything. Yeah, yeah. And I really like that. And then, again, that was so important that I, I wrote it down. And, right on, Mike. Um, I, I think that if more of us live that way and more of us do good, whether it's handing a coat out to somebody or, um, you know, even going getting a thermos full of coffee or a large thermos, full of coffee and going out on the streets with some coffee cups and bring coffee to the homeless. And we, we have some homeless population in our town. And I know many of them appreciate getting a cup of coffee and yeah. um, even sandwiches, whatever. 
Yeah. And you know, that direct action right away can really be useful and helpful, but not only that action, but it's, it's well, what I'm hearing you say too, is actually, you know, do good inside, not just take that action and look good, but to do good inside. Whenever you do something that that two people, at least two people benefit, it's the recipient and the giver. And odds are that because of that ripple out effect, that it's a whole lot more than just two people. But even if it's only two people, the giver and the recipient, it makes all the difference in the world. And I want to tell you, uh, just uh, taking my own medicine here, that as you were just talking, I thought to myself, you are a phenomenal person who is making a huge difference in the world. That went through my head, and I wanted you to know that. Mm, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, will you come back when you release your book? Yeah, only if I can do the moonwalk on, on the podcast. I, I love to do the moonwalk. Uh, absolutely. Be careful what you say, because we can make it happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to come back. It's been an honor. and I, I, Time flies when you're having fun. Time flies when you're talking about important things. And uh, I'm honored to be on your show. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's great to know you. And, you know, our friend Gail, so to speak, brought us together. And I, I look forward to uh, being on stage with you and, and the other participants with Les Brown. And it's, it's really an honor to be uh, part of that group and to be able to talk about being good right here in Bend, Oregon. So that, that should be a phenomenal evening. I'm looking forward to it and I'll see you there. Yeah. Okay, everybody, that's, that's all the time we have today. Um, I encourage you to go to Ken's website, kenstreeter.com. And again, look on the, our webpage and you can get all that information. Uh, look for his new book and maybe pick up his current book. Um, and just go out and, and, you know, be good today. Do, do something for, for somebody else, that extra sandwich, that coat, that cup of coffee, whatever you can do. And uh, like, like you said so eloquently, Ken, time is precious. Love is everything. Right. So with that, that's the end of our show today. Again, share this with somebody else if you're so inspired, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Michael. Thanks.